Hello, this is Tom Williams, and you are listening to Talk Theater in Chicago. My guest this week is a gentleman I haven't talked to in a few years, Nick Sands, who is the artistic director at Remy Bumpo, among other things. Hello, Nick. Pleasure to be here again. It's been six years, yes. yes Long time. Is, yes. Tell us about your current show, You Never Can Tell, one of those uh, shows that a lot of people don't know about, but it's really a brilliant show. It's a brilliant show. It's an early uh, George Bernard Shaw comedy, and... Uh, it's un unusual for him. It's amongst the Plays Pleasant collection that he brought out early in his life. And he was starting to try and create um, a sort of body of work for the stage, having uh, been a critic, a cultural critic, and a music critic, and a theatre critic in London. And then he'd written uh, something like five novels, which nobody accepted. And then he saw Ibsen's Dollhouse and went, wait a minute, I could write for the stage and actually do things and, and create work. And uh, so he was looking at different things, and he went uh, to see Wilde's uh, Importance of Being Earnest, fellow Irishman, uh, and he didn't really like it because he felt that it was too brittle, too too um, temporary. He got, As he said, he got annoyed by the second act because there was no feeling and reality to the characters. So he decided to take uh, the same stage types that Wilde was riffing on and, and sending up. He takes them and sends them in a completely different direction, and so he he starts to write his version of what that sort of light comedy is. And so this is this is early in his career, and it's a light comedy for George Bernard Shaw, which you don't think of it. It doesn't matter. It's still got his ideas and everything else in it. So, Which is one of the things that really makes it brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, he, he, can't, he can't refrain from putting the ideas in there, because that's him. Um, so you've got these one, this wonderful sort of topsy-turvy world. To me, it's a topsy-turvy world, in that it's, it's about... Uh, uh, it's, rather, it's a family play, but it's about... A family where the the women are the people who think clearly and seem logical and cool, and the men who are all uh, all over the place emotionally. So that's the sort of comedic twist he puts on it. But it's it's a it's a delightful uh, uh, comedy set in a seaside resort in England, uh, around sort of uh, a family returning after eighteen years and uh, a love affair between a penniless dentist and the eldest daughter, and uh, long lost parents and things like that. So cliches of comedy uh, in the new George Bernard Shaw way. But in your cast, uh, among other people in your cast, you have you have a lot of your regulars. We have we have yeah. actually uh, yeah. we have only, uh, not so many regulars in this show. We have uh, Greg Anderson who is returning. He played Algernon for us when we did the um, the Ernest, and also did Chesapeake last year for us. Right, and who was just brilliant in that. And he's playing Valentine, the lovelorn dentist in this. Um, and we have Peter Davis coming back, who's a number of shows with us in the past, and he's playing the lawyer McComas. Um, but we have a number of new faces for us as well. Um, we have uh, Alex Weissman, uh, famously of the History Boys and various yeah. things uh, in town. Uh, but also, one of the people who has returned to us, having done one show with us a long time ago, is Dale Benson. And we are so happy to have Dale back. And it's amazing. Uh, we, we've seen Dale. I mean, he's been around for... 50 years. Oh, least. absolutely. Yeah, yes. or more. He and Mike Nussbaum are sort of yes. the, the legends yeah. of Chicago theater. Yeah. And what's amazing uh, for Dale Benson is he has more lines in this show than probably all the shows he's done the last 10 years because a lot of them have been cameo, you know, comic absolutely. roles and musicals. Right. And I thought he was marvelous. Oh, he did a great job. And, it's, and, it's, and what was great about it is that, you know, Dale is in a place in his career and his life where, you know, where he's working for minimum for us because he'd never done Shaw before. So when we called him and Is said, right? would you like to do a piece of show? He said, absolutely, because he's never had a chance. To, he's never been given the chance to do it. So it's been delightful. And he's such a gent. And he's so sweet to everybody. I mean, his onstage warmness is just an extension of what you get offstage. That warmth of, of, of 
heart and that smile and everything. So everybody in the rehearsal room fell in love with him. So everybody in the theater should and his, as well. And his comedic timing is just oh, it's lovely. Just, yes. just perfect. Yeah, you know, and it's and it's a play full of very very different types of timing. You know, Dale has his own unique style of, of timing lines um, and sort of dropping them out there and you sort of waiting and hanging on them. And then we have somebody like Alex Weissman, who is just high energy, high speed, very different de- uh, delivery. And then you Nathan get Lane, uh, like a young Nathan yeah, Lane. Very much so. Said, yeah. I know that sort of energy and yeah. physical energy as well. Um, and then Greg, who has a completely different sort of uh, tempo to his delivery. So it's a really great lesson in different types of humor, which sort of fits because, as Sean Douglas, the director, said, it's very like a Shakespearean comedy when there's sort of three levels to it, if you think of Midsummer Night's Dream. And it has that. It ends in a celebratory dance. It has all those sorts of things that Shakespearean comedy has as well. Yes, it does. And tell us how, how uh, Remy Bumpo uh, decided to do this play. I know it was, it was it has Sean's a long passion. history. Yes. I mean, we, we actually discovered to our great shock that the last time it was done in town, as far as we can find out, uh, is in 1982 at uh, the court. Um, so they hadn't been going very long when that had happened. And Bill Brown played the young 18-year-old Philip in it. That had to be so a while ago. That was a while ago. <laughs> and, and Bill, I think, has ever uh, has been in love with the play ever since. And it's not a well-known show, uh, even though the famous uh, New York critic, Stanley Kaufman, uh, claims it's one of the four best British comedies ever written. Um, and so, other than Shakespeare. He says, other than Shakespeare. Um, so it puts it in the same sentence, basically, as importance of being earnest. But for some reason, it has one of those titles, like As You Like It, or any of those others, which sort of disappear from people's minds. And so it doesn't get regularly done. Shaw Chicago did a reading of it about 10 years ago, um, but no major production. And then, but Bill has always been wanting to direct it. And he directed Sean Douglas back in, I think, 96, uh, in a tour of Montana Shakespeare in the Park. So then Sean picked up the, the torch of this play and fell in love with it. And he played Valentine in that, in that uh, production. So he's actually been mentioning this to Remy Bumpo as a possible show probably for the last uh, seven or eight years that he was interested in directing it. Um, and so, and we've always looked at it and said, well, it's, it's a bit light. It's a bit this, it's a bit that hasn't quite fitted. And then this season, particularly having done Ernest two years ago, we thought because it's, it's Shaw's answer to Ernest or riff on Ernest. Yeah. Um, you know, there's even an interview scene in which uh, Mrs. Clandon, the mother, asks Valentine the dentist, are you in earnest? Yes, you know, and there's sort yeah. of little quotes throughout the year. I think it's, it's, it's a perfect time for us to do it. And uh, Sean's done a great job directing it. And it's a real um, labor of love for him. And it's an example of if you're passionate for a piece, somehow it gets on stage. Absolutely. And you've got to stick with it. I mean, I think it's the same about anything. I said to yeah, some young actors up at uh, uh, University of Wisconsin Parkside a couple of weeks ago, I went up to talk to them and say, you know, Chicago, honors its own, but it takes about seven years, and seven years is a fascinating length of time, because seven years, biologically, is the is a cycle through the human body. All of our cells rejuvenate within seven years. That's right. Um, and seven years, in previous cultures, even Western cultures, has actually been the unit of time we pass on to the next age of something. Um, but for instance, seven, year seven is when you were breached, you got your first pair of you know, pants in uh, Elizabethan times. 14, we always know 14 is when you get into sort of high school. You know, 21 is when you suddenly become legally able to do all these different things. So it's it's odd how our lives have moved in seven-year things. And I think Chicago theater does the same thing. It takes about seven years, if you come into the city, for the city to welcome you and for you to rise up into your place in the theatrical community. And you have to pay that time. You can't leave and go somewhere else. You know, the city 
So basically, you do your own internship or apprenticeship with the city, and the city goes, yes, I see your work, your, you have your place in our community. And I think that's great. It honors its own work, which is terrific. And it's ironically, I think, about seven years that this has taken to rise for the top for us. Um, because so it's right on the cycle. It's yeah. right on the cycle. And it's about time for us to br- bring another of these plays back. And we haven't done one like this for a while. I mean, one of the things under James Bonan, the founding artistic director of the company, one of the types of plays we always love to do is plays that people overlook. I mean, we did Money by Edward mm-hmm. Bulbalitton yeah. in, in uh, 2003. Um, we did Voisey Inheritance uh, a few years ago. That was brilliant. Um, I like that a lot. You know, we bring back mm-hmm. plays that people tend to overlook that suddenly people find contemporary or have something in them that people go, oh, wow, we did Aren't We All by Frederick Lonsdale back in 2005. Uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> his, the Noel Coward contemporary. So... We are interested in those plays. They tend to be period. They tend to be therefore larger casts, and they tend to be a little more expensive to perform or produce. So right now in the economy, we have to be careful when we do it. But it was time for us to do another one, and you never can tell which has disappeared from people's minds. Hopefully, will now be back in their minds. Yeah, and, and you guys took that long to do it. All those plays you talked about, you guys do so well. It's delightful to work on those plays, but not only because you have to dive into the world of the play and the culture of the play and the and, and its and its historical moment. But they are charmingly surprising in that we think of them as all style. And one of the things Remy Bumpo does, I think, which is very important, is that we take a style piece because we are think theater and everybody goes, oh, yes, well, we can do the British style. But what we look for in it is not the style. It's the humanity and the heart and all the things that make it truly human. And those are the values that make it transcend its historical moment and its period and its style and make it completely uh, uh, accessible to any type of audience. And that's what we do, I think, uh, for most of the plays that we do. Uh, everybody thinks we do these brainy plays, but we do them in a way to make them emotionally accessible. Well, and to make them funny. And to make them yeah, funny. If, there, well, if there's any humor in them, you, uh, we're going to find it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you have to dig into this. La- the language, it can frighten people off as people sort of read the plays and go, that's a lot of language. It's like, it's like the, uh, the emperor in Amadeus. There's too many notes, yeah. too many words. But actually, the words, once you allow them to play their own music, uh, bring all that joy out into the open. I mean, they are, they, these people love to show off. I mean, they absolutely, in, they enjoy having fun with words because that's their entertainment, remember? And thank God, there's, you know, the dumbing down of culture. I mean, look at the stuff Broadway sending and, you know, it's it's mindless stuff to it is to, tr- to go tricky. and be challenged. It's only a few places, and you guys are one of them. Court Shakespeare's only a few right. places in town where where uh, you can go and and hear the language and 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 be challenged. I think and be thoroughly entertained, also. Absolutely, and I think you know uh, one of the, my favorite statements from last year that I discovered was in a nineteen seventies. I was obviously directing Seascape earlier this season, um, the Edward Albee piece, and I was reading some interviews of his. Uh, around the time of the f- first production, which he directed on Broadway. And uh, one of the things that he says is that there is no difference between engagement and entertainment. And for him, entertainment means engagement. And for m- me, th- I can understand, I mean, Mr. Albee obviously always cryptic and <laughs> trying to be as dark as possible. Yeah. But for me, I think it's really important for us to understand that when we are feeling, we are also thinking. And when we're thinking, we're also feeling. I mean. Eastern philosophies understand that. We have split those ever since the Greeks and sort of a binary, well, it's either thought or feeling. Mm-hmm. Even in this, in this play, you never can tell. It's about a debate between thought and feeling. At one point, the father who can't do anything but feel for these long lost children and he cannot even think straight, he's so upset, says, 
don't think feel is the only thing that can save us now. That's right. You know? yeah. And it's and it's it's like wait a minute, he's he's quoting Liam Neeson in Star Wars Part One, you know, Episode One. But that sort of split doesn't exist in other cultures, and we suffer from that. And I think it affects the way we go to the theater. The fact that if you are engaged in a play, you can be engaged in lots of different ways. You can feel emotionally engaged. It doesn't have to be the fact you're laughing. You can also be emotionally churned by it. But laughter is a type of engagement. And there's nothing different in that. If you're laughing, it means you're listening hard and you're getting the humor. And that's, to me, a way of engaging audience in other things, like Shaw was. He was entertaining you so that you would listen to these ideas. It doesn't stop them being vastly entertaining and having some great one-liners that you wished you could remember in everyday life. But they come together, you know, and that's why people come and see Albie and they go, wow, that was so funny. And they go, yes, because he's doing the same thing. He's using language to say, if you put it in the right way and you make it pithy, you're going to laugh at it and yet you're also going to hear something which is larger than just the words on the page. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of when you did The Goat. Absolutely. You know, and that play, which everybody thinks, oh, I don't want to go near that play. Oh, it's, it's going to be horrible. If you're in the room with it and you, you find these amazing laugh lines in the middle of that play, when you think, how could you possibly put a laugh in the middle of this traumatic scene? He's brilliant at it. Albie is the only writer I know who can dare to put that in the middle of that most heartbroken scene and find suddenly this witty line. You think, that's got to break the tension. But for some reason, he knows how to keep the tension going and get away with the wit. It's partly because a lot of his characters are like him, which who are they're, they're massively um, self-conscious about their wordage. So some people find that very annoying in the fact that they keep correcting each other in the middle of a huge argument. They'll suddenly correct each other's English. But that allows this sort of humor into the self-consciousness of the way people express themselves, even in the middle of a massive argument. And it kind of gives them a pause, too, to, to sort of absorb what's been going on, right? And it yeah. gives the audience a pause yeah. to be able to yeah. listen, yeah. because it usually uh, points attention to the, what somebody has said by getting a laugh line, but you actually listen to how they have said something. And so you understand the argument that is about saying, well, no, tell me the truth. Well, is that really the whole truth? No, you use this word, and suddenly you're seeing what the argument is about. I mean, how many times have you heard a married couple have that argument. Oh, you use this. You always use this word. You never use that word. It's like, really? You're picking me up on my words right now? I just wanted to say I'm upset. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> you know? true. And marriages are like that a lot. Well, uh, what, what do you have in store for the rest of the season? Rest of the season? Um, well, during the Christmas season, we have this uh, special event, which I'm doing <laughs> in a couple of weeks. I'm doing four performances of uh, a new uh, staged reading adaptation that I've done of The Chimes by Dickens. Uh, which is a story um, that has been overlooked a lot. Um, it was the, f- the the next after Christmas Carol of his sort of Christmas books, even though this is a New Year's tale, what he calls a New Year's Goblin tale. And um, but it is sort of another ghost story. I like to call it sort of it's his version of It's a Wonderful Life. Um, it feels very like that in terms of the structure of the piece. Oh. And uh, but it's rarely done. In fact, it was the first one that he performed. Dickens became. You know, famous for his stage readings of his own yeah. books. Yeah, he toured the world, didn't he? And, yeah. Right, and, and Simon Callow's now sort of done mm-hmm. the whole thing. The, the second half of his Dickens program is actually performing one of the programs that Dickens did, The Death of Nancy and, you know, the, 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 the Fezziwig sequence from Christmas Carol and all that sort of stuff. So uh, the first one he did was The Chimes. And in fact, he, he did a private reading of it uh, the first time. I think he read every word, so it was like three hours long. I have cut it. It's only about 90 minutes. Um, and he actually, I recently just found his cutting. 
and it was the first one that he had done uh, as a public reading. Uh, and so he's, and of course, being Dickens, he loved the theater. I mean, you can't read the, the section about the Crummels, uh, uh, theatrics in Nicholas Nickleby without knowing that this is somebody who knows yeah, theater backwards and forwards. Um, and he loved the popular theater of his time. So he was, he, he did, uh, his own domestic theatricals all the time. He had his own little group, which he called the Crummels group, um, which with he and his friends would act out different things and have plays written for them by friends. And so he was, he was, he loved acting. So this is his sort of chance to get up in front of people and do it. So I'm doing it as the young Dickens. So also that's a Dickens that nobody, everybody thinks of him as once he's got to like 45, 50 and he's got the beard and he's yeah. starting to have the, you know, he was a sort of dashing younger guy, um, which all these uh, young women tend to fall in love with. And he was rather happy about that. Um, had a, was renowned for his, uh, uh, shall we say, extramarital dalliances. And uh, as so many of these brilliant people were. And because these sort of followers would go everywhere with him. And so he, he, um, he, he tended to get up and sort of get carried away in these readings and start to get away from the book and perform various speeches. So it's a sort of theatrical blend of reading and performance. Interesting. So, yes. Yeah, so I'm going to do it and perform it on the You Never Can Tell uh, set. I'm going to do three, three matinees, uh, one on the 15th of December and a couple in the week before Christmas and then one on New Year's Eve in the afternoon. Okay, well, they can get information. And they get your information website. on our website, org and all that jazz. But, uh, yes, um, come and do it. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of a fundraiser. The tickets are quite cheap. And it's a sort of, uh, first go at this for me. And I'm interested to see how people react. Well, sounds like you're, you're experimenting maybe for <laughs> another Christmas show. Yes. Well, it's, it's something that's a good that, idea. Uh, you know, and it's also something that's very portable and, yeah. uh, something that I feel like it can be used as a, as a possible fundraiser and things like that. Cause I could take it anywhere. Uh, like Michael Halberstam did with his up at uh, writers. Yeah. Uh, and now, um, the show down at, uh, the, uh, the downtown that, the Charles Dickens resents, uh, resentfully. <laughs> Blake Montgomery show. Yeah. yeah Blake Montgomery yeah. show. You know, I mean, they, they, it's rife for it. I mean, America's amazing about its Dickens industry. Nowhere in England, although now there are Dickens festivals, but it's like the Jane Austen festival in England. It only started because America started doing it and got hooked on Masterpiece Theatre. You know, Galveston has had its Dickens Festival for That's years right. down yeah. in Texas. And it's only recently that, you know, it's become like, what? You mean people want to go out to this in England? No. Now it's happening. And they do their Dickens Christmas events and do things like that. But here it's an industry. And it's always been an industry, which is sort of fascinating to me. I mean, the fact that this is the 35th year of the Christmas Carol. At the good and it's is, still it's, it's still going running. It's getting great reviews, and it's and got it's, you know it's got you know, that energy. It's well, got energy. Of course, it helps having Larry Yondo. Right, absolutely. But you know, I mean, you got, and you turn around like Anish and, and Jen Malani in it, and, and Joe Faust, and these great people yeah. in the, you know, who have a fun time working on this great story. And what is it about that story? Why is it every year that people go to the Christmas Carol? And I think there's so much of Dickens that is accessible, is is cartoonish, is populist is all those things that make him entertaining and yet sentimental and yet socially relevant and it's that blend i mean in his in his own concert readings he would cut the socially relevant stuff out he just wanted to make it sort of sentimental i must admit i'm uh, fond of the social stuff as well so it's it's a blend as it should be for Remy Bumpo, yeah. of, uh, of humor and uh, well we look forward to that now what, what else you have coming and then in the spring we have yeah. uh, our spring show is strindberg's creditors and we have the Midwest premiere of uh, David Grieg's recent adaptation, which was done at the Almeida in London three years ago, directed by Alan Rickman. 
and uh, was massively well received. And then it played the Brooklyn Academy Festival last year, year and a half ago. Um, three person, psychosexual, 85 minutes, you know, really tight and very darkly funny. This translation is amazingly witty. Um, and I, I love it. It's a, it's a sort of sexual triangle. Um, ex-husband uh, comes back to basically destroy the marriage of the, the wife and her new younger husband. They're all artists in some way. They're all playing mind games with each other, as is usual with Strindberg. But this has brought out a lot of the sophisticated humor in a period that is, you know, the same period as Munch and Freud and the Impressionists. And it's just this amazing cultural sort of a moment that is exploding, and everybody thinks of Strindberg as rather dark, and I think this will change their minds. I mean, obviously it has its dark side, because they're all sort of um, sexually vampiric on each other, but it's it's got this wonderfully twisted dark humor. And David Gray may be in town at the time, because he's also got a play opening up at Writers uh, at the same time, so we're hoping he's going to come into town and, well, and that, do some That would be terrific. So, uh, tell us now, you've been artistic director now for how long? Ooh, 10 months. 10 months. It's <laughs> long enough to, and you've been involved with the company for over long 10 time, years. Yes, right? 11 years. Yes, 11 this years. is my, uh, actually my 12th season. Yes. Okay. So. so, what is your vision now for the future of Remy Bumble? Well, it's been a fascinating 10 months. Um, you know, at the moment, I, I, uh, I spent a very busy summer, uh, writing a lot of documents for the company since I found that even though, you know, this, this company is unique in so many different ways, uh, having sprung fully formed from the head of you know, James Bonin, you know, Athena did from the a head fabulous of job. Yeah. Who did, yeah. Just amazing. Yeah. And such a wonderful guy uh, and, and uh, a warm presence. And everything that is Remy Bumpo is really was built around James. Um, and for James to then step away from that, it's been a really interesting two years, two and a half years of reassessment and saying, what are we when James is not in the building? And James has actually stayed away, I think, for that reason, because he knew we needed to find our own feet. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating, because I found that we didn't have an aesthetic statement. There was no actual statement of what Remy Bumpo does or how we do it, uh, because it was all in James's mind. And we just, he brought together artists who he felt compatible with, and we did all these different shows that we co-chose. Uh, we, we chose them by consensus, and... And people didn't know that. People didn't know that the... I remember he... No, he did tell me that right. when I interviewed. Gave exactly. Gave an exit interview. But it's fascinating to me that the yeah. board didn't know that when I came to them and said, actually, no, we're choosing the season together and, you know, uh, I can be outvoted by the others. And they went, what do you mean you can be outvoted? Aren't you in charge? And so, well, yes, I'm in charge. I get the last word, but that doesn't mean we don't work by, you know, an ensemble. Well, that, you know? and that's the, the real meaning of ensemble, isn't it? Exactly yeah. right. Everybody has a voice and everybody's voice is important. And I'm actually trying to expand that sense of ensemble. Uh, I think something that we haven't done is successfully include everybody. In it. And I'm trying to reimagine that ensemble so that we can grow it by including the board, including the staff, including everybody in all sides. Because I want the artists to be involved in all sides, not just be, you know, oh, you're artists, go over there. Just be artists in the corner, we'll deal with everything else. I think it's important that artists are socially responsible and financially responsible and, and are good business people. It doesn't stop them being artists. It doesn't mean that they have to censor themselves. It just means that they have to be fully rounded. Um, we must all be fully rounded. And for the board and the staff to be also inspired, because what keeps them here is the art. What else is there? It's what we do on stage and how we do it and the process we go through in the rehearsal room and the joy we have of putting art on. Because none of us gets paid well enough to do this. Um, that, and if we don't find that joy and we don't get everybody inside that room, 
then it's it's not worth doing what we do. What so, about in terms of work? Any any change in directions? In like, terms of the direction, like no. Like a musical, well, maybe? Uh-huh. Well, uh, actually, you should say it's interesting you should say that. We are actually trying to expand the type of work we do while staying totally true to who we are as Remy Bumpo. You know, basically, we do revivals. We do modern classics. I mean, that's our sort of standard fare, um, trying to reinvent them to a certain extent by going back. It was interesting. I was, I was listening to Charlie Rose this week, and there was an interview with Antonin Scalia. Uh, about his new book, about originality, going back to the, the Constitution and examining the words of the Constitution and its historical moment and its historical accuracy, you know, the context, and saying that's how you must interpret it. And for us, that's exactly what we do with plays, originality. It's not about trying to uncover what the intention of the author is, which is obviously a very troubled idea, because you can't. Um, but what you can do is do as much in, uh, investigation of the text the text in its historical moment, the text in in terms of other texts of its period, um, everything is based in the, what's on the page, and and that sort of investigation of rhetoric and structure and uh, dramaturgy and everything that you know we love to do because we're book nerds, <laughs> we're we're curious people. I think that's why James brought us together. We are so curious about the world. Every play is a journey into somebody else's life, uh, and that's what's so exciting about what we do. So finding plays that do that, not necessarily British comedies, but um, finding a blend of those things with adventures that we haven't taken yet, pushing the ensemble into places that we, we haven't been yet. Um, so, And I'm very in, uh, interested in pushing us into using text uh, that is uh, more translations and adaptations of great literature, maybe from different cultures or from different literary forms. Looking Glass has done some too, but I'm looking for a slightly different way of producing them than that. Um, because they're obviously interested in the physical adaptation into different types of storytelling. I'm looking still at the words being the main way of telling the story. Uh, and I'm still interested in, in rather than narration theater, um, actual dramatic situation theater. But I am very much interested in that type of adaptation. And I'm also looking at cultures who we tend to ignore. Um, you know, there are, there are so many writers who are award-winning writers that even in Canada, who I've never heard of in this country. You know, I, I've got a couple of German writers, a couple of French writers, who are, you know, Yasmina Reza, for instance, obviously famously has now made the break because of, because of yes. art, and then, you know, several other places didn't work, and now God of Carnage. But there are three or four other French writers who are just as good that nobody knows in this country. Uh, there are Polish writers that nobody knows in this country. How do we make them mainstream? How do we make them as important that's as an interesting challenge yeah it is an interesting challenge and i could see you know, getting an audience absolutely and, yes. and making that our third play in the season putting it next to shore and stoppard and saying hey i mean stoppard as he calls himself is a bounced check that's what he calls himself because he's a check you know and he was actually educated in singapore and india and then he happened to get to london you know england uh, and he's in a drop out of school and become a reporter at the age of 18 and is totally self educated so, so really, you know, what does that say about the fact that he's brilliant with language? I mean, Conrad the same, you know, all these people who come from different cultures who are great with English language, and yet we think of them as, oh, because they're English. And I go, well, they started somewhere else completely. So did these other writers. And I think, for instance, looking at the National Theatre uh, and the Donmar and the Royal Court now and the great programs they've got of bringing up new writers um, that from other cultures and trying to cross-culturally uh, encourage this type of writing, I think it's a really important thing. So I'm looking in those dis- different directions and seeing what we find. Yeah, well, 
I'm sure the way you you guys all <laughs> dig around uh, that we have a, a long short list every year. Yes, yeah, so I'm in the So are you are you open right to new works? I am. I am. I'm, it tends to be for the new work. I mean, we've done them before. Um, it was interesting when we we did our only really uh, contemporary American play, um, fiction by Stephen Dietz, uh, back in '07. Um, nobody paid the blind has been in a, not one reviewer or anything said, wow, Remy Bumpo's doing a contemporary American play. And it was like completely ignored the fact that we had said, you know, we were interested. Uh, so we went back to doing what we were doing. But we did Power, obviously by Nick Deere back in 2006, which was, we got the, uh, we were one of the two first American productions of it. It was done at the same time in Washington. Um, and we've obviously worked with Ranjit Bolt on his brand new adaptations of things. So new works in terms of new adaptations, I think, is where we probably can allow that. There's so much new work in the city, it feels odd for us to do new work as well. That's just clean new work sort of thing. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, this is one of the few towns there is a lot of new the work. Huge in amounts. Yeah. I mean, and it's great. And I love the fact that it's excitement about it. That's, that's the hard part for us because the town actually pays more attention. And right now, my struggle is as we start to try and remarket under my new leadership with our new marketing director, Lee Allen, uh, and trying to, like our brochure this year, I got this lovely letter from Bob Falls when our brochure came out this year, because it was the first brochure that, that Remy Bumpo has ever produced that wasn't black. Literally, That's it had true. a red cover. Yeah. We've always had this sort of black and sort of tasteful and pastels, and that was how our previous you know, uh, designer and, and marketing tried to go. And then uh, last year, under Timothy Douglas, they tried a very different approach, which was sort of two-dimensional. And I said to our artist this year, uh, graphic artist uh, Charles Riffenberg, I said, no, I want three-dimensional images that have puns in them, have jokes in them, that have layers that you may not notice on the first or second or third viewing, just like the plays we do. And so that just inspired him to produce some great images this year, really colorful and they're tr all trompe l'oeil. There's all second meanings in them. You have to look at them two or three times to say, oh, look at that. And, oh, that's that's the, the, like the, the the Chinese lanterns are the jewels on, or the flowers on her hat in the You Never Can Tell mm -hmm. poster. Um, things like that sort of just sort of had double meanings. And I think that's what we do. We do wit and puns and clever arguments and everything that is balanced. So it felt right to me. And it also felt right to say, hey, this is new life for the company. So we put color in. But everything like that sort of ties to the type of work we're doing. And I think this year we have a chance to really reassess everything uh, in terms of marketing, in terms of the way we put ourselves out in the uh, the community and it was great to get a letter from bob falls to say yeah. love the season love your brochure you know keep going and i was yeah, like, it was yeah. a really sort of uh, that's cool that he noticed it too. exactly yeah, yeah. you know and that he sent a personal note rather than an email or anything like that i, w I was very touched by that and very moved and you know bob's become a really great sort of mentor to the community encouraging the smaller groups bringing them in doing yes, the new stages yeah, project that's true he's, he's he's really stepped up as being sort of um, you know, bringing else other people along. And he keeps his eye on the smaller companies more than we ever know. Yeah, really that's does. great. Last question as we're running out of time. Uh, is there, is there a particular play or part that you haven't done? I know you, <laughs> you, you, you moved into musicals doing My Fair Lady and doing Camelot. You're right, marvelous right. in those that you would personally just love to do. Um, I, I've been, I've asked this a lot of times and there isn't really uh, because I, I used to have a list of the roles I wanted to do, and, and of course, 50% of them you never get to do. So you you sit there mourning the the Hamlets and the Romeos and things like that, that you never get to do. But I got to do Benedict three times, and I got to play Henry V, and I got to do all these great roles. So, and I've been really blessed in the fact that I have got to do some very challenging 
culturally sort of uh, challenging roles, playing Freud, playing Darcy, playing Sherlock Holmes, things that come with a huge amount of baggage, doing Higgins in My Fair Lady. Everybody's expectations are right there. And I love those challenges. So I'm just waiting for the next challenge that happens to pop up. At the moment, it's gone into directing. But I'm looking for that next time that I go, this is one I can't resist. Okay, so. last question. How do you manage being an actor, being an artistic director, and being a, a fight director? You do a <laughs> lot of fight choreography. Right. I'm still working at the Lyric and, and doing all those things. Um, and Well, it's, it's tough right now. I mean, I've actually had to sort of give up acting for a year while I get my head around this job. So hence the little one-man show thing is actually good for me to keep my sort of fingers in the pie. Um, I am I am struggling to balance all those things, but I always have done. I mean, I've always worked like a 60, 70-hour week, and that's what I will continue to do. Um, and I know it occasionally worries uh, the company here when I say, well, this week I will be at the Lyric Opera. Um, but it's easy to keep track now that we've got electronic uh, media to keep us informed of everything, and uh, I can step in at a moment's notice and Fortunately, uh, my wife is patient. Um, <laughs> but yes, I, I sleep a short night, shall we say. So. But see, you have the passion. And, and Always. it's amazing it. in all the years I've done these interviews that, that the people with passion are the ones that somehow I end up interviewing because they're the ones doing things, making it happen. Well, they've made it happen, and they've risen to the top because of their passion. If you don't, you've got to have a passion. You've got to be insane to do this, and you've got to have a passion to do this because it's art. And, and I think the, the knowing that you are like Don Quixote, you're, you're chasing the impossible dream. You, that's all you're doing. You can never be perfect. You can never do everything you want to do as an artist, but you have to strive to do as much as you can. And to do that, all that you have to have is this burning desire, this passion, because what else is supporting you? Nothing. You know, if you can do something else, do it, because you must be insane. But that's what drives everybody, and it's what keeps the heat in it, and it keeps you enthusiastic, and it keeps you alive and looking for new challenges and everything that makes you an artist. And that's so. why art is so important. Absolutely. Nick, thanks for the interview. And folks, remember, get out to see a play this week. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.